So this evening I'd like to talk about belonging. I'd like to talk about the Sangha. And I'd like to talk about bridging what divides us as a spiritual community. And before I start talking about that, I'd like to introduce you to some of my children. Rumaine Brisbane, 34, Phoenix, Arizona, died December the 2nd, 2014. Tamar Rice, 12, Cleveland, Ohio, died November 22nd, 2014. Akia Gurley, 28, Brooklyn, New York, died November the 20th, 2014. Kajima Powell, 25, St. Louis, died August 19th, 2014. Ezel Ford, 25, Los Angeles, died August the 12th, 2014. Dante Parker, 36, San Bernardino, California, died also on August the 12th, 2014. Michael Brown, 18, Ferguson, Missouri, died August 8th, 2014. John Crawford the third, twenty-two, Beaverton, Ohio, Beaver Creek, Ohio, died August the fifth, two thousand fourteen. Tyree Woodson, thirty-eight, Baltimore, Maryland, August the second, died August the second, two Eric Garner, 43, New York, died July 17, 2014. And Jonathan Farrell, right in my neighborhood, 24, died September 14, 2013. So these are just a few of the names of unarmed African-American men, women, and teenagers killed by police officers over the past several months. And I'm Ruth King, their mother. I'm their mother. And as a grandmother of a 20-year-old who's at risk in Los Angeles, and a great-grandmother, and an elder of this planet, in addition to your yoga dharma sibling, I'd like to talk to you about belonging tonight and what it means to be in spiritual community, what it means to have this practice be a source of healing and renewal, not just for me, but for all of us.
Now, some of you may have been very touched by these killings or these incidents and may have even known some of the people that were affected. And my heart goes out to you, as is to so many others of the family and so many others that are harmed and killed unnecessarily in our troubled world. And it seems to me, from what I know about these teachings, is that belonging has to do with our relatedness. And it's a relative necessity for us becoming enlightened. In other words, our spiritual community becomes the fertile ground for us awakening. It's our relationship with each other. And whatever that is that has everything to do with how we wake up in truth together as a community. So I invite you to just think about this with me, with your sibling. And you've probably seen this picture on the Facebook or it's been floating around. It's a collage of all the different faces of the killed boys, men, and teenagers, some men, mostly men and boys, also women. It's a total of 56 on this collage and counting. So these are my babies. So I want to invite you to do a little exercise as a community, as a way of touching in to our deep humanity. And um, you can opt to not do this if you like. But it's a silent exercise, and I'm just going to ask you to um, stand and face face-to-face to somebody near you. Just do that quickly. We're not going to take a long time to do this. If you choose to do this, just stand and face someone in silence. So take a breath here and just look at the person through the eyes of your heart. And just imagine for a minute that you're facing the mother, father, sister, brother, or the children of one of these men and women in the collage. Just imagine that and notice how you feel as you look. And take a bow here with this person. And then turn real nearby to another person. Staying in silence. Pausing here. And now imagine here. that you are the, that your mother, father, sister, brother, 
or a child is in this collage, is one of the images on this collage. Just imagine that for a minute and notice how you feel as you look at this face and imagine that this person's beloved is on this collage. And imagine that there was no indictment or no consequence for that loss. Just consider that for a moment. And take a bow here for this beloved. And one last time, one more person, a new person, new song assembly. Taking a breath here. Just noticing how you feel. Look around if you don't have a partner. There's one person there. And looking at this beloved, just imagine here for a minute that it was your son. It was your husband or partner, your father, who was a police officer involved in the shooting. Just imagine that. Just imagine that. How does your heart feel? And what would it be like if you've done everything humanly possible and there's nothing you can do at this time? But to be with it in our practice. Notice what you're feeling. Take a bow here and then come back to your seat. So, welcome to our world. I know it's, it's something that we've all been affected by. And this kind of tender time calls for wise understanding and a collective action that's grounded in a deep appreciation of our kinship, our kinship, our belonging, and our karma. That's also a piece of this. Parker Palmer, who is a beautiful author of a book called A Hidden Wholeness, says that belonging is an abundance issue. Abundance does not happen automatically It is created when we choose community. We choose to come together to celebrate and share our stories. The true law of life is that we generate more of whatever seems scarce by trusting its supply and passing it on. So there's something about sangha and community and belonging This is a place where we share our stories. 
a sacred place to do that. So belonging, again, is a relative necessity for enlightenment. It's the, it's the soil. Whatever the rub is, whatever the disturbance is, whatever the beauty is, it's all part of us waking up together. We're so tender, actually, as humans. We're very tender. And I like what Choi and Trumper Rinpoche says about the soft spot. And Pema Shrodens describes the soft spot as the weak link in the hard boundary of the ego structure. The soft spot, which is something we all have. You know, babies have it at the top of their head. If you felt up there, you'd feel it up there too. We have that little soft spot at the top of our heads. It's a tenderness that we can't really avoid or deny. And it represents a certain access to the heart, this soft spot. So it's the weak link in the hard boundary of the ego structure. And we're culturally conditioned and touched and shaped by our life. Our ego is shaped by, the, by coming through these bodies. So we kind of look like the people we're around. And then our lives are touched by our experiences. We're shaped by a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And we move through our lives making sure we can maintain a certain belonging and membership in certain aspects of our lives just out of survival. So we're tender. We're tender in our hearts because we want to be accepted. And that's not always the case. So in our culture, there's severed belonging. There's severed belonging in our culture because of how we're conditioned. It doesn't mean as you're wrong or you're right. It means that we're conditioned and what is naturally created is a sense of severed separation, us, them, top, bottom, dominant, subordinate types of relationships not to mention the trauma that oftentimes is a result of that. So Tara speaks beautifully about trauma and healing, and she says that healing is re-examining old traumas with new resources. So again, the community being a place where we can share our stories, but we can also use the Dharma as new resources for our healing. And that's what I'd like to explore with us tonight. Alice Walker says that, she says, I think we have to own the fears that we have of each other and then in some practical way, some daily way, figure out how to see people differently than the way we were brought up. That's her challenge to us as a spiritual community. So what blocks kinship? What is it that, that um, is the conditioning that we have that tends to get in the way? What are some of the characteristics that kind of keep the separation happening? Because it's not just around race. It's about any group identity that is uh, either dominating or subordinating our lives. And we tend to be in 
one of those camps throughout our lives. We all know the dominant experience and we all know the experience of subordination. So I want to talk about three things that tends to happen in our relatedness that interferes with our, uh, that keeps the severing happening. One dynamic is the dynamic of blindness. So the assumption with blindness that happens is the dynamic where we just don't see certain things. You know, the uh, elephant goes into the therapist's office and is stressed out on the chase and the elephant says, you know, I don't understand, you know. I'm right in the room, right in the middle of the room, and nobody notices I'm there. (laughs) How does this happen? So one way of looking at blindness and understanding it is we can look around and say who's here and who's not. What's that about? Do we notice? Do we ask? Mostly do we notice. So that's one thing to look at. I was at, um, you know, the the blind assumption that happens with blindness, (laughs) the blind assumption that happens with blindness, is that there is an assumption that everybody thinks like I do, and we're all just good people. That's the blanket assumption with blindness. So one thing that happens sometimes is I've had people say to me, Oh, when I look at you, Ruth, I don't think about race. I don't see race. It's like, but I want you to see race when you look at me. Not that I'm clinging to race, but that it means something in my life. It's a certain texture. It represents certain experiences, and it's, it's part of the life I've lived. And if you don't see that, and I do understand the sentiment, it's, it's a pure offering of I see you as a pure human being. But we have differences in our lives and that's so important that we snap out of that blind assumption that we're all just good people and all the same because it means different things to different people I was at a talk last week on the post-Ferguson situation in Charlotte and I was sitting with a young accountant, a white male and we were given this question to explore and And the question was around, you know, was something to do with what do you think happened or something. And he said that um, it's unfortunate that the police officer shot him and it, it, it shouldn't have happened and I feel horrible about that. So there was no sense of seeing race in that at all. And to me coming from my perspective, and that's all it is, is my perspective. Uh, That's all I could see. And so it it, kind of reminded me of the, we can look in the sky, and we can see that there's a sky full of stars. But some of us see patterns. Some of us see the Big Dipper. Some of us see shapes and constellations because we've been looking at it for a while and we recognize what it is. Some people just see a sky full of stars, and that's kind of like the difference. What do we see? Some people see, you know, that gestalt photograph where it's the old woman and the young woman, 
And you can look at that photograph and forever you can't, you can either see the young woman or the old woman, but once you see the old woman and the young woman in the same image, then you can see that, you can, you can, you can recognize it. So the invitation around blindness is not just about seeing what I see. I want to get that clear. But it's seeing something other than the perspective of, oh, we're just all stars. Perhaps seeing the constellation that's there. I understand the star Chiron had been in the sky for eons, but it was only recently, the last couple of centuries, that we were able to recognize it. And what was required was a collective consciousness to be able to see it clearly. And this is kind of the flavor of blindness that I'm talking about, that there are things that are there that we have to kind of shift our view in order to see that it's there or to entertain a broader kind of story than the one that we hold. So that's blindness. And what happens oftentimes with blindness as a dynamic in our sangha is that the person who sees the shape is the one burdened with pointing it out. So that can be very difficult. I'm, I'm reminded of, of uh, law reminding me again and again about the, the use of pronouns. And I just keep screwing it up. And she keeps... <laughs> and La keeps pointing it out again, very lovingly. You need to get that. You need to see that. You need to see that constellation. And so it's my practice to, to get it. And my prayer that she that La tolerates it. But it's, it's a practice. And I screw it up. I don't get it. And I'm hurting people as a process. And because that's not my intention, I commit myself to wake up again and again. It's like that. There is the dynamic of silence. There's blindness and then there's silence. Silence oftentimes happens when there's a devotion to safety. We're waiting for somebody else to say something so we don't have to. And, you know, we're just kind of hoping that we won't upset anybody. So there's a kind of sitting, which is actually a contraction, which is actually a subtle normative form of suffering that we embody. Some of us are silent for different reasons. Those of us with privilege sometimes will be silent because it's a way of maintaining our privilege, our membership. Some of us that are not in the privileged category for whatever the situation might call for might maintain silence because it's just less effort because there's an accumulative impact of constantly being the one that's voicing something. 
that gets tiring. And sometimes I call it the bid-pass dynamic with this oops and ouch that we get ourselves in. It's kind of like the subordinated group members will pass because it's like in 15 minutes I'll have another opportunity at it. So I'll just wait and speak to it at that time. So there's a cumulative impact and there's an imbalance in the offer that we have to maybe wake up to. So that's silence. Silence is a very common dynamic and is based on a certain unspoken norm, an understanding of what's right, what's a proper yogi, what's a proper Buddhist, what's a proper teacher, what's a proper whatever. So we kind of collude with showing up in those ways and speaking in those ways, even if we don't believe it. It's just kind of like just, just one of those human things that we do. And to speak out of silence can be a bit of a challenge. Like, I don't know if some of you may have noticed Ajahn um, Brahm, Theravadan Buddhist monk, in Tricycle Magazine this month, that wrote an article on putting an end to Buddhist patriarchy. And the article is uh, as an advocate for gender uh, equality within Theravadan tradition. And what's fascinating is not only is this a provocative offering and publicing and somebody uh, standing and not being in silence, but it's particularly interesting to see the comments on the website of how people react to taking the stance. So, so you get a taste of, of the impact of coming out when you go against what's typically unspoken. So I, I'm an advocate for affinity groups in this regard because we need safe, structured places where we can mess up, get it right, be supported, be loved through it. And so sometimes it's really useful to... Um, get together with people that are like you and have the conversation and explore the questions, explore the stories we've been telling ourselves that are no longer true. And to be in a place of um, compassionate listening and healing where you can revisit old wounds with new resources and develop more wholesome intentions for supporting and and being in the world and living your practice, not just on the cushion, but off the cushion. And it's a beautiful place in, in affinity groups to break silence, to break the silence, to break the, the habit of not speaking what's true. And it's also a beautiful place to explore the diversity in your perceived sameness. Because sometimes we get together as an all-white group or an all 
you know, people of color group or what have you. And one assumption we have is the blindness assumption. We assume we all have the same stories, have had the same experiences, and we haven't. It's outrageously diverse and rich, a rich resource of texturizing and alive and being more alive in this sensate body. And the third area is around sameness. That's a dynamic that can also... So it's almost like if we get in our infinity groups and we just stay there. Sometimes we're in infinity groups and we don't realize we're in affinity groups. So we're unconscious about the fact that when we look around, we're kind of all white people, you know, or all black people, or all blonde, or all bald. Sometimes we, it just doesn't occur to us. I saw a statistic... Uh, from Blue Action Review, and it says, incoming Congress, 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. (laughs) It was a Facebook blurb. So it's not necessarily a problem, but it just never occurs. The blindness, silence, sameness is really working on that one. But it's useful to kind of ask the questions and look at our sameness and maybe use it. It's a false refuge that we're all the same. But it's useful to investigate our sameness, our perceived sameness, because when we stay in a sea of sameness, um, we're not aligning often our intentions with our impact. And sometimes being together can help wake us up around that. So blindness, silence, and sameness are are dynamics that often are at play that keep us divided, keep our hearts divided, keep our minds a little more narrower than we may want them to be. Jack Cornfield says that if we understand community as a place to mature our practice of steadiness, patience, and compassion, if we understand community to become conscious, a place to become conscious together, then we have the fertile soil of awakening. So this current state of the planet, of our social fabric, of our sanghas, of our communities, how it is right now is, is a result of past actions that we're taking, we've taken. And what we do next is really important for whether these things shift or stay the same. It's our own minds that we're looking to evolve, that these bodies and our belonging supports us in. So our practice, our meditation practice, plays a critical role in this healing of what divides us. Our relationship to what occurs, the intimacy that we have with our ability to stay present with what's happening or to run away from it is is so important. There's a few practices that I'd like to suggest that really support um, very directly, I think, some of the 
areas of blindness, sameness, and silence. The one is to maintain our sitting practice and to establish mindfulness. Because the sitting practice is the place where we can bring the discomfort, bring the confusion, bring the complexity, bring the anger, and cultivate a capacity to sit with it with a heart wide open. This is a practice. This is not something we do right away. This is a life practice as I see it. One of the things we can begin to notice in our mindfulness practice is that our emotions are impermanent and, and that the emotions that arise and the thoughts that we have and the beliefs that we start to examine, they, they can actually be the object of our meditation, the object of our mindfulness. We could almost consider discomfort a core competency for awakening, that we get used to discomfort, that it's not a bad thing, that we actually know when we're in that place of discomfort, that we're actually, that something's cooking, that something's happening. And it's lovely that Tara is going to start a beginning course on the introduction of mindfulness because that's really a beautiful foundational place for us to begin our process of being able to bear the complexities of our lives. Another practice that's so helpful is forgiveness practice, especially forgiveness practice towards yourself. And one of the ways I've been practicing with forgiveness is to notice the tension that I carry in my body and very consciously and intentionally releasing that tension as I become aware of it. And I'm struck by how gripped I am when I'm walking and being in, in the world, how tight, that, how, how, how tight my muscles are in my behind and my hips and my chest. I mean, there's a, 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 a contraction that I can feel. And forgiveness practice in the way I'm speaking to it is really about releasing that tension the moment you notice it. That's forgiving yourself when you can soften the tension, the grip that you're carrying in that moment. So see what it's like to have a forgiveness practice where you're releasing the tension in your body when you become aware of it. But be on the lookout for it. It changes. And to um, have that as a practice for a while. The third area is around Vedana. Vedana is the second foundation in the mindfulness practice. The first foundation of mindfulness is being with the body and the breath. The second foundation is being with the feeling tone. The feeling tone is very different than the emotions. And what's beautiful about a practice of Vedana is that we practice not engaging the story that we have about something as much as we are looking at whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's a way of cutting through. It's a sword practice of cutting through the story, not believing your thoughts, not even going with the thoughts for a minute, cutting through the story, 
coming to the bare bones of is what I'm experiencing right now pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And when you can focus there for a little while, then begin to see if this is unpleasant, is it rooted in one of the poisons? Is it rooted in greed? Is it rooted in aversion? Do I just want to run away from this? Is it rooted in ignorance, some, some belief I have that's really not holding true? If we can stay with the Vedana, just the feeling tone, the simplicity of is this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, then we can begin to see the deeper root underneath it, which is really driven by one of the poisons, usually, of greed, aversion, or delusion. So that's a beautiful practice of staying close in, staying close to the experience you're having right now instead of the story that often takes you elsewhere. And I'm sure in the course with uh, Tara, there will be more talk about the second, the first and second foundation. And then the last practice I'd like to suggest is a practice of dana, the practice of generosity. And that's not so much a financial generosity as much as it is looking at how you give your time, a livelihood offering. So where am I giving What am I giving? I often say to people to find something to give a a damn about and then give it the fullness of your non-harming heart. Find something that you care about that matters and give it your full heart. And here's a reflection I'd like to offer you. You can just close your eyes on this if you like. It's a Donna reflection. Some of the questions we can ask are, how do I work with my thoughts and beliefs in ways that nurture the dignity of all life? How do I ensure justice without fostering generations of harm and hate, both internally and externally. How do I comfort my own heart in a sea of ignorance and violence throughout the world? And how can my actions reflect the world I want to live in and leave to future generations? So you can open your eyes. Let me just say that courage is key to kinship and karma. The Buddha talked about conduct as a very important quality. In one of the suttas he offers, he says that he's speaking to Brahmins, and the question comes up about whether Brahmins 
are born Brahmins and they just inherit the goodness of Brahmins or is it something else? And the Buddha says that you're not a Brahmin just because you're born a Brahmin. You're a Brahmin because you are living in certain ways that, that represent certain conduct. So it's our conduct that speaks to us being Buddhists or us being Brahmins in this sense or us being yogis that matter the most. It's what we do. So, ideally, we want to cultivate our heart and mind so that we can care in ways that take care of our sangha, take care of our spiritual community, ensure our belonging, make sure that it's not so much about whether everybody shows up in this room and it's fully diverse It's more about our hearts being divided, our hearts being severed through ignorance, greed, or aversion, through blindness, uh, silence, or sameness. So we begin by being willing to look and feel and care, and, um, and we act as if our life depends on, on our actions because it in fact does. So I'd like to just offer these as thoughts for us this evening as we look at ways to belong and connect and recognize ourselves and each other's goodness. Thank you. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.